Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I am the Assistant Director of the Hendrick Center here at DTS. And today, we are going to be talking about how we understand our own makeup as human beings, how that comes into play, into societal conversations, and the big fancy word for at least how we understand ourselves to be made up as human beings is ontology. And that is a rough and dirty definition. (laughs) Our wonderful guest, Daniel Hill, the assistant professor of Christian theology at George W. Truett Theological Seminary, whose specialty is theological anthropology, um, is going to help us have a much better definition. Thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's a treat, real treat to be with y'all. Yeah. Daniel actually used to be on, on staff, on faculty here at DTS, so it's exciting for us to be able to get to see you again and to get to hear your voice and your wonderful insights again. And before that, I was a student. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot yeah. you were a student here, too. Yeah, yeah back in the day. Gym, right? Yep. Yeah. Almost 100 years ago, but yeah. <laughs> I know. Doesn't it feel that way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Daniel, how did you and how did you come from DTS to, I know you went to Wheaton and working on your PhD and you have to kind of specialize. And so mm-hmm. how did you end up specializing in anthropology? And for people who are listening and may not even really know what Christian or theological anthropology is, unpack that as well as how you came to be interested in it. Yeah, I mean, the path was a little circuitous for me. It was a little winding. I was writing my master's thesis on a church in South Africa, uh, when I was getting my THM at at Dallas, and I would go to this coffee shop to write all the time, and I would sit there after work, and I would watch all these people get off work, and they'd come to this coffee shop, and they would just hang out around the the bar, Mm -hmm. the espresso bar. So there's no uh, alcoholic beverages involved. It's just (laughs) coffee, and they would just stand there, and then they'd leave. Like, they wouldn't come in groups. They would come as individuals and just hang out, and it was the strangest thing to me because it didn't really map on to any of my experiences, but it also, I couldn't figure out why are people doing this? Why would you come to a coffee bar and hope to chat with a barista you don't really know after work for like an hour and just stand there, Hmm. not interacting with other people? And I started to wonder, what is it about us that is longing for human connection? Um, that, That was like one strand. And then the other strand, I was memorizing First Peter with some friends. And in First Peter... At one point, it says, husbands, uh, don't be harsh with your wives because of your prayers. And that kind of stood out to me. He says it later on in First Peter um, to elders. It's like, why is my prayer life affected by how I treat other people in the church? What What is that presupposing about who I am as a creature and how I'm connected to them? And it didn't really mesh with my me and Jesus. I'm just an individual way of seeing the world. Hmm. Um and so that led me to Wheaton to study with Mark Cortez, who's an expert in theological anthropology. Uh, and that's the fancy way of asking the question, what does scripture and revelation and what God has done in Jesus tell us about what it means to be a human being? Um, what it, what are we supposed to be desiring? Where are we headed? What are we made up of? Um, all those are bound up in the question of theological anthropology. Hmm. 
And so you were driven to it by just the longing for like human connection that you saw in a variety of different places. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the text of scripture that we're saying, Hey, we're connected in some kinds of place. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, so you said, uh, what we're made up of as you were telling, like talking about a part of what anthropology is, is that what you would say is ontology? Yes. Ontology is uh, the study of being. So what does it mean when we talk about human ontology, what does it mean to be a human being? What are the parts that make us up? Not like head, shoulder, knees, and toes parts, but do we have a mind? Do we have a soul? Do we have a spirit? Do we have bodies? Are we bodies? All those questions are, it's variations of the same question is what kind of being are we? Hmm. Are we rational? Are we volitional? Do we have freedom? Are we gendered? All those stuff are is captured in human ontology. Yeah, I think um, ontological is probably many seminarians' favorite word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know very many people who aren't seminarians who use the word a lot. But yes. it's kind of like once you learn it, it's a term that like really you almost can't fully unpack. Like the, it's it's a great word in that because it, it encapsulates this concept, like you said, of being and, and something actually like existing like like it just again it's it's really difficult but i love that word <laughs> yeah so i was playing scrabble too. sorry what were you yeah, i was playing i was playing scrabble with my parents a couple maybe a year ago and i played the word ontic which is a variation of ontology <laughs> and they were all like that's not a real word and my parents are educated <laughs> and honest like no one you no one talks about that and you're like i can you just trust that i i know really yeah it's <laughs> awesome all right so how do so again that's a really big, kind of scary word. And we're ta even talking about pretty abstract topics to a degree. Mm -hmm. So how do you, or how would you even just to orient people as to the practicality of some of um, people's ontology, whether they know they have it or not? Like, how does it impact people's daily lives? So, um, yeah, just how, how does ontology and presumptions about it impact our daily lives in a way that we might not expect or appreciate? Yeah, I think there are probably a couple easy strands uh, to, to, to map out there. The most obvious is probably bioethics or medical ethics. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say you have a loved one who is rendered you know, brain dead or is put in a medically induced coma. Are they still alive? And do they have certain rights and um, how should we interact with them? Um, what differentiates that state from being a corp, from someone who's a corpse or from a corpse? Uh, so that's one of the more like concrete um, points of emphasis. You also get into questions like human rights and uh, can you, can you uh, let's say you have a pathogen or a, a vaccine or what not, or so, you know, anything that you want to test its efficacy uh, what delimits who you can you you can test it on mice? We generally accept that in society. Why can you do that with a mouse? So you can't do that with a human person or with a um, someone who's deteriorating or something like that. And why would that be out of bounds? Well, you have to say this person, this even someone whose like mental capacities are diminished, they are still a member of this category human being, 
and is distinct somehow from being a mouse or a house plant or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so ethics is one of the key ways uh, that you can see some of these questions just playing out. And maybe like you were even talking about with the, you know, like the hospital decisions that have to be made and that kind of thing, that might be a key place somebody actually encounters the topic in a way that they have never had to encounter it before. And that might be one of the reasons it is such a, I mean, there's a variety of layers to why it's such a complex and horrible situation to find yourself in. Yeah. But that is part of it is that you're having to grapple with this, like, you know, a very real um, or very real life example of kind of an abstract concept, but, you know, where where life and death touch, you know, yeah. like that is part of the domain we're talking about here. Yeah. And the journey, even the journey towards death. So there's a philosopher of the 17th uh, century who says, we are our memories. Well, um, my son didn't have uh, object permanence first couple months of his life. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of most of our lives, our mental capacities diminish and our memories fade. So what makes you you? If you don't have your memories and you might say, oh, it's the relationships we have with one another. Well, that's an ontological claim. Um, and if you can't remember those people, do you still have those significant relationships? Uh, so I think, yeah, I think there are and beginning of life, conception, end of life. A lot of these issues are really brought brought to bear. Mm, so I can't imagine at least having been in the theological world this long that people don't have different opinions on this. <laughs> yes. Everybody likes to have a different opinion on things. Um, so let's talk first about some of the different opinions or thoughts about ontology, specifically that would lie outside of the Christian faith. So those who, yeah, so just like, okay, let's lay down, you know, Christian orthodoxy, those lines and say, we're not going to play on that field right now. Let's play on this other field. What are some right. of the, the positions and thoughts that are being put out there in society as a whole? Yeah, I think probably the historically predominant one is that we are not embodied. We are just souls. Hmm. And maybe something happened to us. Well, something certainly happened to us, because for all intents and purposes, I can look at you and see that you're embodied. Uh, but that's but who I essentially am is something, uh, and I and I strive to be just a soul. Um, and so you might associate that with Platonism or Neoplatonism, um, and uh, but you see strands of that in Buddhism, in mm -hmm. Hinduism, that materiality is fundamentally something to to flee, to avoid, or it's a, a, a state of privation. It's not as good as being immaterial. On the other side, so. Yeah, that's one side. The other side would be, and there are Christians who affirm versions of this, would be that I'm merely material. Um, so you might call that a reductive physicalism or materialism. Uh, materialism saying that there's only physical things in the world. Uh, and so human creatures are no different from mice. Um, well, different, but not different uh, on a 
ontological level to use that word. Uh, maybe See, it's degree. An it's, one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's degrees. It's not a difference of kind. Mm -hmm. So you might be stronger than a mouse. You might have better intellectual capacities than a mouse, but you're not a fundamentally different kind of thing. Um, and so that would be materialism on one side, and then we're just souls being uh, Platonism or Neoplatonism on the other. Okay, so you said that there are some Christians who hold that. What is there any kind of position that would be distinctly unchristian in with that, or is it kind of the same? And there are some Christians who just hold it. You know, like you mentioned, reductive physicalism. Is there, you know, something that if somebody, a Christian, were kind of thinking through positions and they say, hey, I kind of really like how that sounds because I yeah. come from a science background or something like that. I can really appreciate that. Is there something that would be out of bounds as they were yeah. embracing that kind of ontology? Yeah, I think there are. So there are theological issues and then there's uh, the uh, there's an idiom I'm trying to think of that I can't think of. So there are issues to keep in mind. But the big concern you should have um, is a Christian, just in general, doesn't submit to the, the, to the proposition or accept the proposition that materiality is all there is. Mm -hmm. So even if you're inclined towards it, you have to, you, as a Christian, you believe in God the Father, maker of all things visible and invisible. So in that statement, you're saying there is this God who is spirit, who's not reducible to a kind of materiality. Um, he's he's qualitatively different, or as uh, one theologian, she says, he differs differently. Um, so you wouldn't be able to say all that exists is material. You'd have to have a big caveat uh, with the name Yahweh. Hmm. But you could say everything else in the universe is material. Is that fair? Um. I think that you would, again, I'd be like, well, what about angels? And I know, right? then That's you could ask me if, <laughs> yeah, well, there are some theologians who think angels have a kind of body. Hmm. Now, is that a material, it's not the, it's a spiritual kind of body. Uh, Augustine calls it an airy body. Um, I don't know why I put scare quotes around airy. Uh, but so you could, you could quibble about that. And there's, there's a little bit of disagreement on to how to parse out the angelic realm um, because you don't want to say on the one hand that they're material like we are, but you also don't want to say that they're spirit like God is because God, when we say God is spirit, we're making a claim about omnipresence and you don't want to say an angel is omnipresent. Um, um, so I think, I think the angelic question would be like, a, I would put that in the category of a theological issue. I'd also put like the hypostatic union being a theological issue mm -hmm. um, in that uh, as Dr. Wong has written at Dallas, that the uh, incarnation is a one-time thing. The hypostatic union is a one-time thing. So Jesus assumes a human nature. And in his death, he's still united to that human nature. Um, and if you think a corpse is all that is, how do you, what bridges the gap between his death and resurrection? Um, but you'd have to read his book to see the rest of that argument mapped out. <laughs> he did not pay me for that plug, by the well, way. Well, you know, you just got to... Have each other's backs, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so for those, so you, you gave us two different sides of the spectrum of those who have, you know, thoughts on ontology outside of the general Christian tradition that would be outside of, out of bounds. Um, and what does that look like? Like, 
to somebody in society. Like I kind of, I, I kind of referenced, you know, maybe people from a really scientific perspective would oftentimes perhaps argue for a, you know, a reductive materialism, reductive physicalism. What would, one, would you agree with that? And two, what would the like spirit-based one look like? Yeah, I don't know if I would say that all people who are scientifically inclined, and I might have, I, I might be misunderstood. No, you, I don't say. You. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't even say that most. Um, yeah. Most Christian Christians who are scientists would be inclined in that direction. I could. I think there are certain kind of advantages and disadvantages. Uh, so there are uh, folks like Trenton Merricks or Nancy Murphy who are Christian philosophers who would say, well, most of human history has said the soul does certain things and now we know the brain does a lot of those things so what is the soul doing and why do we need it we can explain much not all but much of human mental life and much of human desire and etc action all that stuff in terms of neurological cause and effect so why don't we just use neuro you know the soul should go the way of occam's razor the way of all flesh we don't need it doesn't do anything anymore. Um, and yeah, so I, I, there are certain advantages to that. You have, you know, you have greater dialogue with the hard sciences. You can have greater di- dialogue with neuroscience in particular. Um, what that might uh, look like, like mapping out, um, you would be saying though, that like someone's like, let's say someone is feeling anxious or someone is feeling depressed or scared. Um, or doubting. All of that is just like neurological, like a neurological causal chain, that is what you'd be saying. That there's nothing, and you just need to change something in the change to the change something in the chain to get a different effect. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh someone like Augustine, Aquinas, you know, Calvin, you pick your person in church history, they would say, no, there are certain spiritual practices we have to engage in in order to train our this immaterial part of us to desire God rightly. Uh, it's not just this kind of causal, uh, you put this in, this comes out, um, but you can restrain things, you can fast, you can, and you, you can long for this intervention of, of God on your behalf. Um, and it's not all explicable through cause and effect. Um, on the pure spirit side of things, uh, there is a tendency to just denigrate the importance of the body. Um, you want to get away from if materiality is something we've fallen into, it's not where or it's not a part of our ultimate destiny, then um, you see that kind of branching out in two directions. Either I can do whatever I want with my body because that's not really me. It's just this thing I have or I want to become ultimately just kind of numb to the body. Uh, so there's some accounts of Stoics standing outside in the ancient world in the middle of blizzards and rainstorms because they're trying to achieve this state of complete numbness to the needs and the desires of the body, starving themselves, um, fleeing any kind of material, uh, viewing material materiality as any kind of good thing. Um, and both of those have some theological issues too. Uh, so one on the spiritual discipline side of things, the other one on the, you might say, Genesis 1 through 3 side of things. Yeah, and when you're talking about those who are trying to numb their body, numb themselves to their bodies and that kind of thing, like you referenced earlier, I, I, I don't think it was, yeah, you did. Um, there's definitely 
like ties to several world religions there. So we can see that very clearly playing out. But what do you think is the is the relationship between that kind of maybe not necessarily like a denigration of the body, but kind of an unimportance? Um, uh, an agnosticism with regard to the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see any kind of relationship between that and technology? I think there can be. I think if I were to uh, make a like kind of baseless speculation, I think contemporary society, it, typically we associate materialism with atheism or with secularism. Mm-hmm. I think contemporary society is more inclined to the ancient uh, way of viewing the body as, as of complete unimportance. Uh, I think that's actually more in light of uh, where we are. Uh, and so the body is just something to modify. It's like a machine you're trying to fine tune. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so any of the aches and pains and ills of the body um, are things to be triumphed over and overcome. And there's, there's like value in, in medicine and, you know, physical therapy and, um, all these hosts of ways that we try to navigate life in the world. Um, but when we view the body as like something that is just a, just like a computer we're trying to upgrade in different ways. Uh, I think we've gone far afield of where, uh, where Christianity has called us to be, to be very blunt. Wait, that's okay. We, <laughs> but we, and it also makes me think of, we just did a podcast um, recorded a podcast, I guess, um, on the metaverse. And so this idea that there would also be this whole other world that doesn't fully, I mean, it sort of necessitates a body, but at the same time, it, it, it nothings the body to a degree because you may or may not actually be physically involved with whatever's going on in that like internet type metaverse mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on that with regard to ontology or is it kind of the same yeah i think i would i would agree i was giving a, a lecture in dallas at a church on the metaverse last summer and uh there's so much there's so much like goodness about our being located in a particular area and there are so many things about being located and stuck somewhere that we need to accept as good like, I can't do anything about, I, it limits my agency. I can't change and be involved um, helping someone in Alberta, Canada, in the way that I can be here uh, and to my neighbors here. And that's that's okay, because God made me as someone who's stuck in Waco right now. And I can move, obviously, but the people around me, my neighbors, the people in my church, the people across the street from me, He's put me here for them, to serve them, and to sh- share the good news of salvation with them. Um, I think there's also a, yeah, I think, so I think that, that's something I think the metaverse is kind of fleeing away from, our locatedness, our, the fact that we're stuck places, that we're limited. Uh, and uh, the body is one of those things that limits us. Um, if you've ever tried to run an ultra marathon, you your body is the thing that keeps you from going forward. That says this far, no farther um, at a certain point. Or a marathon. Not necessarily. Yeah, or a marathon. I haven't even done an ultra. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, yeah. have you run an ultra marathon? 
No way. No, I haven't run a full marathon because I my body quits at not at mile nine. It says, "Why are we doing this? Why are we paying to do this?" <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot there. Maybe you yeah. should like. You could have like just thrown that out there, and everybody'd be like, "Wow, yeah, that's yeah, cool. yeah, no, uh, no, I appreciate that." <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, "If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican." Huh? That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. All right, so we've covered the the spectrum for those outside the faith and what out-of-bounds ontology, or at least some key markers of -of out-of-bounds ontology might look like. So you've already started talking us through a little bit of what some of the positions are within the Christian faith. Like Mm -hmm. the fact that there's not something we'll get in a second to, or maybe you can start with like what all Christians should believe. So I think you already alluded to that with regard to like, there is some, there is something immaterial in that it has to at least encompass God. Um, would you agree that that's what all Christians need to hold to? Is there anything else? Yeah, I think the that would be like the first thing. I'm very hesitant to say like all Christians have to, unless it's like Nicaea, Chalcedon, something like that. Um, I think the Christians should, I would say, affirm the goodness of the body because we say that God, who eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, comes to us. Through a body and in a body. Hmm. Um, and both of those prepositions are important. Uh, so that's an, that's an affirmation of embodiedness, uh, of being bodies. Um, and so Christians should affirm that God didn't make us as spheres, but he formed us out of the dust of the earth, uh, as Genesis 2 says. And that that's a good thing, that he declares that stuffiness of us good uh, and so and he embraces it in the incarnation uh, and with that comes claims of like being able to relate to others uh the, that that's something we do as bodies it's not something we do as minds um so we should affirm the goodness of bodies we should affirm the goodness of limits uh because bodies are limited to be embodied is to be here and not over there um of boundaries my body has an end and if i enter into another body, I have to do harm to them. Um, and so that's a, that's a good thing to have kind of this boundary marker to steal an Old Testament image that, and use it inappropriately. Uh, so we should affirm the goodness of limits, the goodness of boundaries, you might call those rights, and the goodness of, of bodies. And there are some other things you could uh, go on from, from there. Um, Christians also tend to believe that there's this immaterial portion of us. You might call it the mind. You might call it the self. You might call it the soul. 
You might say this emerges from materiality. That would be a non-reductive physicalist. You could say it's this immaterial principle that is joined with the body. That would be a dualist. A, a holistic dualist would say that they are inseparably linked. Um, there's hylomorphic dualism, which is saying the, a soul takes a particular form as a body. And there's questions about how to parse out hylomorphic dualism into one of those two sides of the spectrum. And then there are some Christians who say we have three parts. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Um, uh, and that's called a, a tripartite anthropology or a trichotomy. Uh, and you see that in Tertullian. Um, but in contemporary times, you see it in Wolf, Wolfhart, uh, Pennenberg, and, and others as well. And it's taken from 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe. And so what passages so i i mean and you can kind of choose whichever position you'd like like to start with but what are some of the key passages talking or giving us some concept of ontology and like what scripture says about how the human being is made up and that kind of thing and i mean obviously with this many different interpretations it's fair, hopefully, and if we're being charitable to one another to say, you know, it's it's probably broad enough <laughs> that it's not an open shut case as, you know, far as what scripture does say. But what are some of the key passages that are kind of out there that all of these uh, interpretations are kind of revolving around and trying to make sense of? Yeah, so that's a that's a difficult question because it depends on who's reading mm -hmm. and who's reading and who's interpreting so for a while, you have all these passages up until maybe 19, I think it's 1980. But all these passages in the Old Testament are, it's like, and God put breath, and God put breath. And you would read that, and people would say, breath is immaterial, it's like spirit, body and spirit, right there. Um, a couple Old Testament scholars read through the Old Testament, and more than a couple now, and say, well, breath is not soul, it's like the life principle, and you can do a... Uh, you can see like this development of how nefesh, which is the word for breath in Hebrew, is used. Um, it's used sometimes for like where food goes, food keeps you alive. It's used for like exhaling and inhaling, exhaling and inhaling, keep us, you know, maintain the life force of the, of the human creature to a certain extent. So um, that would be the place many people used to go. Uh, and then you have passages in the New Testament, like the rich man and Lazarus which is a parable, so that gets into some genre questions. Um, and I think the bigger argument I would make personally for there being some immaterial element to human life is the resurrection body. In 1 Corinthians 15, in Revelation, there's this promise that you will be bodily resurrected and that the immaterial self, soul, whatever you want to call it, is that which preserves the identity from your death, your life, before resurrection and your life after resurrection, that there has to be something about you that endures uh, in order for it to still be you. Does that also, does that same concept connect to those who would hold to an intermediate state? I know an intermediary state, like I know that some don't, some traditions right. don't, and that's, that's fine. But for those who do, is that something that they would be pointing to as well? Yeah, so they would say, well, if there's some part of you that endures, it has to be somewhere. And you read Paul talking about, I wish to be with the Lord. Well, he doesn't seem to be saying, 
I wish one day in the resurrection with all of you to be with the Lord, because he says, it's better for me to stay here now than to be with the Lord in Philippians. Uh, and so someone might read that and say, well, in the intermediate state, or uh, you go and you are with the Lord. It's not, uh, you're incomplete in a sense, because the hope is the resurrection of the body, but that the soul kind of continues to exist in the presence of the Lord after death. So I feel like what you were talking about with regard to Ruach and that and Nefesh, that like the the Old Testament terms for for breath and spirit, um, that that is perhaps am I right in saying that that was a maybe something that the Christian physicalists, the one who the ones who would be emphasizing the materiality mm-hmm. of the human being. Um, that they would bring up against, you know, <laughs> those who are trying to uh, assert some some level of dualism. But that seems to me like almost more of a critique. Are there any passages that they would specifically point to that the more material would point to? Or is I that, don't. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no. I think the biggest argument would would be Scripture doesn't say this. Okay. And then we know that the. So it's like you're using these passages, but these passages don't mean, uh, I don't know if that's copyrighted. They don't mean the things that you are thinking that they are meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so where would you then argue that this is from? And if you've taken all the biblical kind of foundation away, uh, you know, the Protestant would say, for the most part, okay, well, maybe this isn't something we confess if there's no scriptural evidence in favor of it. You know, once we're... You're always reforming. Um, I think the difficulty is you still have these, you'd still have some passages that uh, seem to indicate that you continue, that you are promised to be raised. Not that like a copy of you will be raised, but you yourself. Um, If I were to put on my non-reductive physicalist hat, I might say passages like in the psalmist and in Isaiah, where it says, I can't praise you. Uh, in shale, that maybe that's an indication that I don't continue to act. And I can't continue to exercise any agency after death. Uh, and then from there, it's like, well, those who say that are kind of importing Greek philosophy into Christianity. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So one last question slash direction of conversation. So are there any kind of cultural conversations playing out where we see essentially like non-Christian ontology at odds with Christian ontology. So I think you talked a little bit about that with ethics, but we can Mm -hmm. maybe dig in a little bit more there because now we've surfaced all of the different positions, but I mean, we can talk there and then obviously add anything else, any other areas you see it playing out in a way that people might not realize ontology is actually a lot of what's going on in this conversation. Yeah, there's there's a famous case with a philosopher. uh, I think he was in Australia, and he might be an Australian philosopher at that, um, who was saying if someone is disabled, mentally disabled, if they're like have a mental impairment of some kind, uh, and so they're not, they don't have the cognitive abilities of I'm using scare quotes, you know, normal human beings. He would say that, so I'm speaking Mm -hmm. um, from his vantage point, uh, that we should eliminate them from society. 
um, because they're no different from, say, like an orangutan or, say, uh, you know, a dolphin might have more rational powers than someone who's severely mentally impaired. Um, and that that is the we're just material things, you know, raising raising a ugly head. Uh, so that would be one way uh, in the ethical conversations. Uh, you see that in questions on when when does life start? When does life end? How should we treat uh, people towards the end of life? Should we usher someone into death? Should we end someone's life? All those are questions about what makes us who we are, what makes us valuable, where our value comes from, um, which are ontological claims. Uh, so in contemporary times, we tend to value things based on their use. Uh, so I have a computer that doesn't work very well. It sits under my bookcase. It has no value to me. Um, and But we can treat people like that as well. Mm-hmm. So if someone is elderly, what is their usefulness? If someone is young, what is their usefulness? Um, and what if someone is born with Down syndrome, what is their use? Uh, and a Christian uh, theological anthropology should say, well, you know, the, the arc of redemption is that we are we are not valuable because of what we can do for God, but because God sets his affection on us. Uh, and so that person with Down syndrome is valuable to God. Uh, and they have all the rights and privileges pertaining to someone who is beloved and, and, and loved by God. Um, I, th- I think there are all, also interesting questions that come up with uh, issues of like uh, how we should respond to the decay of our bodies and uh, is it something we're just always trying to flee and stave off and put off for as long as possible um so you see this in contemporary times with like how many supplements can you cobble together Mm -hmm. to keep your testosterone or your estrogen levels up to a certain degree so that you can be immortal um but we're creatures of time and that's a good thing uh and it's uh not something to run away from that God has something for us in each of those stages of life, uh, something good for us. Um, it d- doesn't mean that I should like try to b- burn out my knees as fast as possible so that I can be arthritic in my 20s. But when arthritis comes, I'm not valued based on how well my joints perform. Uh, that's not where my, my rights and my dignity comes from. It comes from the fact that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, and embrace humanity in the incarnation. Um, and you can you can just, I could keep going. I don't want to mm-hmm, yeah. uh, rant for too long. Um, <laughs> but you see it in questions of gender. You see it in questions of, of, of sexuality. All those are like fundamentally come down to a lot of the time to questions of ontology. Hmm. What are we? And it's almost like because of a Christian ontology, you could end up making a really unique stand on something, um, such as let's let's go for supplements because that's easier than some of the other topics. <laughs> but let's, you know, where you say like, no, I mean, I will do my best to reflect, uh, like to respect, like you said, that I am inhabiting time and that is how God made me and so that and you know different people will take different like stances here but you know and so that means for me I only go this far as far as it goes to you know like you said like trying to perfect the machine you know that kind of thing and recognize like no I'm 
I am embracing my situatedness in time and in the body and that kind of thing. And that's a really distinctive position in in society these days, or it has the potential to be distinct, particularly when it's coupled with, you know, the gospel and with um, really like an, an ability to unpack one's ontology and say, mm-hmm. no, I believe this because of scripture. This isn't just me taking some kind of new age or old age or whatever position. This is really because of what I believe. And that is an interesting point of conversation, you know, that, that people might not have ever considered. Hmm. Yeah. We have, uh, my wife and I have some really good friends and, uh, one of them uh, has MS and it, uh, multiple sclerosis. And the doc, her doctor told her you have six, essentially you have 16 years before you lose the, you know, your eyesight and the function of your arms. Um, and first off, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting claim to make to someone I'd like the, with that kind of certainty, uh, but that's a different conversation. It's a different podcast. Uh, so I can take all the supplements I want and try, let's say that there's some combination of supplements that will, you know, keep my testosterone levels and keep me at peak performance for that. I have 16 years with my friend. Roughly, give or take, right? Mm-hmm. I need to learn to be with them. And it would be sad if I spent all my, it would be sad and pathetic to spend all my time trying to flee from death when there are so many around me who don't have that option. And uh, I'm to be there as Psalm 119 says, companion. I'm to be there, a companion of those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Uh, our calling as Christians is not, uh, and this is, I think, an ontological claim. So I, I said beforehand that vocation flows out of ontology. Mm-hmm. Our our vocation as Christians is not to try to live forever. Our vocation as Christians is to try and be faithful in the time that we've been given uh, and to bear witness rightly to God and Christ in the time that we've been given. And that doesn't mean you got to eat bacon seven times a day, but we, we aren't those whose lives are governed by the fear of death because we have this promise of resurrection that the person I am today is the person who will be raised to life, which again is an ontological claim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's, I find it such an interesting area of conversation, like I said, because it, it seems so abstract <laughs> when yeah. you first are talking about it and even introducing the word and trying to explain what the word ontological even means and all of that. But then when you get down to it, like you said, you know, it gets down to our vocation. It gets down to decisions that we make about the pills that we swallow. It gets down, you know, it gets down to the nitty gritty so quickly and, um, and it's just something that I would hope a lot of Christians would take the time to think through so that they're not just absorbing one of these narratives that we've been talking about, all the different and narratives. They're not necessarily being a bad thing, but just yeah. there are a variety of narratives with regard to what humans are and are made up of and are who they are ontologically. And I would hope that a lot of believers would take the time to work out for themselves where they stand on that because there are such practical ramifications. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So Daniel, I just want to thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful chatting with you. And um, I am hoping, you know, that this impacts people's lives and that they 
go open up a dictionary and start working <laughs> this stuff out. And, um, and, you know, heaven forbid, searching something on the internet and who knows what you'll find. But um, yeah. we really appreciate you being with us and just unpacking so much that you have spent so much time studying. I, I don't know that people sometimes recognize how many hours <laughs> of reading there is in the ability to just be like, oh, yeah, you know, here's what the Stoics used to do. And here's what yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this current or semi-current philosopher in Australia is saying. So we just really thank you for your time and for your dedication to your craft and to your scholarship. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And if someone's interested in learning more about this stuff, there's a wonderful kind of technical book by Mark Cortez called Theological Anthropology, A Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, and then there's a book by Kelly Capick called You're Only Human, which is a little bit more accessible and talking specifically about finitude. So I would encourage, and uh, John Swinton has a book called Becoming Friends of Time, which is about disability and time. So I would encourage, if you're interested in reading, hearing more, parsing some of this out, those are three great resources. No, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, the Kelly Capick book is huge for the executive directors currently they're big yeah. fans of it so yeah. oh yeah yeah and he's a wonderful human being <laughs> well good that's even better yeah <laughs> all right we also just want to be sure and thank you who are listening um we want to thank you for your time and recognizing that you have lots of podcasts out there that you could listen to and we just want to thank you for joining us for this little bit amount of time that you have in your life and we would ask you if you would be so willing to join us next time when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.